Okay, so you got uh, handouts. You should have Brother George Patterson. I love this article. This is one of those articles that um, I read right after I came to the Lord. And uh, I, uh, I look back and the Lord established me in a house church movement. And I read all kinds of books that fueled that whole fire and I just thought it was normal and I look back now and I realize it was a little bit a little bit radical um, but this is one of those articles that uh, I've read probably 30 times over the last uh, 15 years and uh, and uh, I guess not uh, yeah, they had it in the second edition of Perspectives. Anyway, uh, and there's so much wisdom packed into it. Every time I read it, I'm just like, no way, George. Can there be this much wisdom in so few pages? I mean, it's just staggering. I read it uh night before last, and I was just sitting there going, Unbelievable. So I decided I'd uh, copy it off and give it to you guys and encourage you guys just to read through it and, uh, and enjoy his uh, approach. I quote a few times in this set of notes and, uh, and uh, learn from George. George was here uh, last year, uh, spoke over at All Nations, and it uh, just about killed me that I couldn't be there, but... Uh, He's in his 80s now. They say he's just as lively as he ever was. So, anyway, so session 10. Um, if you want to pull out, oh, I don't even have my diagram. Very sad. Uh, so, uh, just kind of to review, there you go. Love it. Review on the di- diagram. Um, this week is kind of, if then you have a uh, gathering of believers sojourning in light of the day of the Lord in the context of house church, how then does the uh, word of the Lord spread rapidly? And so the uh, session is titled, The Apostolic Multiplication of the Church. And we'll work through uh, the mechanisms involved um, so introduction and review in light of the promised kingdom and resurrection, the church is called to worship, discipleship, and evangelism. These functions of the church are all in direct relation to the coming kingdom. We worship the sovereign one who will judge the living and the dead. We walk in righteousness in preparation for the righteousness that will soon be established on the earth. And we appeal to all creation to flee from the wrath to come. And so like uh, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, in light of the judgment seat, the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, we try to persuade men from, uh, from entering into judgment and we function as ambassadors of the coming kingdom. B, God has given the assembly the gift of a deposit of his spirit as a helper to aid in our perseverance and testimony of Jesus The Holy Spirit is the grace of God given to believers to sustain and empower them in their sojourning during their time of exile. Given in response to prayer, gifts of the Holy Spirit are administered through the fivefold ministry for the edification of the body. So, uh, like we talked about, 
all of the elements and functioning in the life of the believers is unto faithfulness in our sojourning. And uh, faithfulness in, in uh, believing God and worshiping God, trusting that he will bring about what he's promised and make a distinguishing between the righteous and the wicked, that, uh, that we'll remain faithful in producing fruit and keeping with our repentance concerning the day of the Lord and will remain faithful as a witness to uh, the day of the Lord and Jesus' resurrection. And, and so in that context, all of our life is ordered around faithful sojourning and, and a disciplined lifestyle and not uh, redeeming the days like Paul says in uh, Ephesians 5 and not letting our, our short time like grass uh, be wasted in this age. And then likewise, suffering trials and tribulations walking in the spirit that uh, the Lord has given the fivefold ministry to administrate these things and keep the church and shepherd the church in, in faithfulness unto the day of the Lord. So like uh, Romans 12, in Christ, uh, we are many form one body. Each member belongs to the other. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. Man's gift is prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing, leadership, showing mercy, etc. All of these in light of uh, the daytime that's to come. And what Paul is referenced immediately before that in uh, Romans 11, which you guys are familiar with. See, all the functions and elements of the church are best accomplished through a home-based form. So this is what we talked about last week. The corporate-based model is not only ineffective uh, because it is so consuming financially and temporally and it's so inaccessible to do professionalized uh, leadership, but it's also illogical in light of the day of the Lord, the coming kingdom, and the, uh, the culmination of wickedness on the earth under the Antichrist. So it's ineffective and illogical. So like Luke 12, where Jesus is talking about, don't seek after the things of the earth. Don't seek after uh, wealth and riches like the pagans do. Uh, <clears throat> they run after these things, meaning they set their hearts on them. Not that, that it's wrong to have them, but they set their hearts on them. Seek first his kingdom and it's clear the next verse that that's eschatological. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So in context to the day of the Lord and our inheritance, it's logical to use our wealth to love people and bless people and therefore store up for ourselves reward on that day when he gives to each man according to his deeds. So logically, sell your possessions and give to the poor in your midst. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Because we spend, you know, keeping up with our corporate holdings, we spend an unbelievable amount of money maintaining what is corroding and falling apart and being taken from us in various different ways. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is uh, 
like uh, like uh, Mike pointed out the other day, it's it's uh, I think it really is more of a circular pattern where you have just one. Give me just one. So orthocardia, a right heart. not living for this age, but living for the age to come, ought to inform orthodoxy, right doctrine or theology concerning the day of the Lord, which ought to inform orthopraxis, right behavior. But then... For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And your heart, like the saying goes, your heart will always end up following your feet. And uh, and so the way you jump into the circle is repent of your desire to rule the world and hoard to yourself wealth and power in the last days. Put your faith in the day of the Lord and in light of that... Sell your possessions and use your wealth to love people and store up for yourself reward with God that he will distribute on the day of the Lord to you. So, page two. Oh, I love the rest of that verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will, will be also. Be dressed, for, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. So you really do have, you know, just a shift in focus from the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord and the coming kingdom in the Constantinian shift when the church adopted great wealth and power, stopped fighting against Gnosticism, accepted a kingdom now theology that validated their desire to build a kingdom, and then they started walking and producing fruit in that theology of a kingdom now. And so you and when that shift happened, where their treasure was, so their heart completely followed, and they completely the the church the the center piece of the, the return of Jesus as the center of the gospel and, and uh, the good news and the proclamation of the church fell by the wayside com- and the church became completely unready and prepared for the return of Jesus. Now, obviously, there's always been movements uh, within the church that have, have loved the appearing of Jesus, but uh, speaking generally... So 1 Corinthians 7, an effective and illogical 1 Corinthians 7, what I mean, brothers, and he's talking in context of the chapter 6, the division in their midst. You know, if you knew you were going to judge over, rule over the world and judge the world, you would take care of and settle disputes in your midst now. And then he talks about sexual immorality in the last part of 1 Corinthians 6. And, and don't you know that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom? And then he moves into chapter 7 and talks about marriage and virgins and you should stay in the station where you're at. And I wish all men were like me and wouldn't get married in light of the kingdom. But it's not a sin to. I just want to deliver you from all of the pressures and evils of it, which there are pressures and evil. There's also great blessing in it, being married for 12 years now. But there, there really is... Uh, a lot of issues that and a lot of your devotion and time just given to 
the things of the Lord get taken and you have to devote yourself to your family. And it's right to, but there's just the tension to those who can accept it. They ought to. And, uh, and so he says, he concludes with, he backs up what he's saying all that with, saying, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. For now, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. And so he makes a broad application to life in general, not just to marriage, but to everything kind of summing up his whole argument in the first six chapters about how they ought to live. Because the time is short, those who have wives should live as, as, as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away because the time is short. And so in light of the day of the Lord... Everything ought to be tailored around being a witness and faithful in our sojourning until our short time of sojourning comes to an end. And, uh, and then 1 John 2, this is really one of the more mind-blowing passages because this is where John presses the point that, listen, in light of the Antichrist, not just the day of the Lord, but in light of the Antichrist, don't seek after the things of the world. And he's really talking about building assets and wealth in this age. And so he says, First John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And the things in the world are uh, uh, talking about wealth and power. But primarily, it, well, it's both of those two things because the two go hand in hand. Um, for the love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all this is in the world. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride in riches. And, uh, and so some of your other versions say the pride of, or the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But that word bios is, you know, from where we get bios and biology, referring to life, gets translated variously in the Greek in different contexts as not just life, but the resources that sustain life. And so this is why the NRSV, the ESV, and the New Living all translate it as riches or possessions, because the point of the passage is don't love the world and the things that are in the world, the things that the world runs after, ruling over the whole world and and aggregating all of the uh, uh, wealth in the world to yourself. And so the desire to indulge in the flesh, to have whatever the eye see and the pride and riches comes not from the Father but from the world. And the world and its desire are, desires are passing away. And so... Uh, you get the same phraseology, but those who do the will of God live forever in the resurrection. So if you live not like the world lives to build wealth and power in this age, but you live for the age to come, you lose your life, you will gain it in the resurrection, you'll live forever. Children, it is the last hour, the time is short, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So there's not a shift in idea or thought here. He moves straight into the world is going to continue till a man raises up to, to 
to seize power and rule over the whole earth and, and uh, consolidate all the wealth of the world to himself. He says, Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you concerning the day of the Lord and the reward of the righteous. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is what he has promised us, eternal life in the resurrection. If we abide in him, not seeking after the things of this age, which are passing away, which he just reference and now little children abide in him so that when he is revealed we will have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming because we have not gone the way of the world like the like we talked about last week the germany nazi germany being a picture where the lutheran church sought after the state church sought after to build its empire and power and wealth and therefore was lured right into hitler and uh, and because they assumed that favor with him would mean more wealth and power to build their empire, and that's why the apostasy happened. And so, therefore, in light of <laughs> this is what's been the Lord's just been pounding me this week. Like, do we really believe it's the end of the age? I mean, seriously, if you really believe it's Nazi Germany. And you're in Munich in 1929, and you really believe Hitler's about to rise up in a few years. What do you do? What do you do? You start doing the confessing movement, like Bonhoeffer and the such, even though he did try to assassinate Hitler. But you start doing that on the front end. You repent of... Your desire to buddy up with the world and gain wealth and power, you start fierce allegiance with Jesus as the only king over the earth and that all wickedness will be punished. You start setting your faith in the day of the Lord, proclaiming the day of the Lord, and then you start living like it's real, using your wealth and power to bless and love people, not to aggregate wealth and assets in this age. And start doing house church that can't be crushed under persecution. So, uh, point one, church planner and missiologist David Garrison, he uh, works with the International Mission uh, Board with the Southern Baptist Convention, keenly summarizes ten advantages of home-based fellowship, which we kind of work through according to the chart, but I like how he lays it out. Leadership responsibilities remain small and manageable, so you don't have uh, young men following, falling so easily into the uh, the uh, sin of pride and uh, you can have younger leaders actually manage in a responsible way if heresies do occur they're confined by the small size of the house church you're always going to have immature people teaching goofy things and and trying to find significance and having people follow them and whatever whatever but at least then it's confined you can discipline it and set it on a narrow path instead of having a guy who's immature, a 27-year-old, put in, put in leadership over a church of 5,000. It's just like, that's the craziest thing. <laughs> I won't mention who I'm talking about, but it's like, you wouldn't know him anyway, whatever. But, it, I mean, it's just like, you, keep it small and, uh, and uh, whatever. You can't hide in a small group. Accountability is amplified. Member care is easier because everybody knows everyone. 
Uh, so you have innate pastoral ministry because house church structure is simple. It's easier to re- reproduce. You don't have to train for years to professionalize leadership. Small groups tend to be much more efficient in evangelism, assimilation of new believers because they actually have friends. New believers have friends that they can, that, uh, can spur them on and, and uh, disciple them. Meetings in homes, positions, a church closer to the lost. It doesn't matter what's going on. Unbelievers, you, you have to go to unbelievers. That's just, it's proven itself for 2,000 years. House churches blend in the community, rendering them less visible to persecutors. And so any persecuted nation, there's only house church movements. Based in homes keeps the church's attention on daily life issues. And this is the, I mean, this is probably the most blaring fact of, of, you know, Western megachurch movement is that you just have daily simple life issues completely neglected and families falling apart and friendships falling apart and businesses in disarray and it's uh, crazy. The very, and so you keep the life issues, you keep the cells of the body, so to say, you know, your life in God, you keep your cells uh, uh, healthy, then the whole body will be healthy. Uh, Jay, the very nature of of multiplying house churches promotes the rapid development of new church leaders. And uh, so this, Chad and I, uh, last year we had a, a, a a friend came from, uh, the Middle East, and uh, I guess I can say he's from Egypt, and he was talking about just, we're just kind of getting to know each other, and Chad was over at the house, and he was just talking about how, you know, 15, a little over 15 years ago, he and his friends were all had come out of college, and they just started, they were meeting in their homes all the time, and they just started this, like, home church movement that grew to like 1500 people and house churches all around the city. And it was just multiplying and growing and, and receiving intense persecution from the, from the corporate churches in the city and persecution from, from uh, the Islamic community. And, and it was just going wild. And there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't day of the Lord. There wasn't right. Good. Oh, right, but solid theology to back the house church model. But he, like, he had like where four or five years of just on the site training, and he was just laying out how to do house church. He, I mean, he had like the whole network lined out, and how you know what leaders you need in each house church, how to administrate it, how to encourage them, how to network them, how to. And he was just lining out like all the reasons to do house church, and I mean, he just had all the mechanics down. But none of the theology, the sojourning theology behind it. And Chad and I were just sitting there going, unfreaking believable, <laughs> you know? And uh, anyway, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not just because most of the, like we, mo- most of the house church uh, guys, it's mostly just based on the pragmatics of that it works better. And it does work better, but... How much more it works better if you have a, uh, a, a theological foundation for why to do it where, you know, you have, um, yeah. Anyway, so point two, uh, corporate holdings are not inherently evil but must be maturely and shrewdly managed 
in the equipping of the body of Christ. If a corporate holding begins to disempower the ministry of the most simple common believer, it must be crucified. Wealth and assets must be used to bless people rather than people being used to build wealth and assets. Um, just remembered something. Hold on. I don't want to forget it. Um, and so this is the, I mean, this is the rhetoric. You always get the rhetoric that all the buildings and all the programs, all of that is there to equip the people. I mean, that's what, that's what the rhetoric always is. But the reality is, is that nobody ever hears the Lord say, shut it down and sell it for the sake of equipping the people. Nobody hears like Acts 16 the Lord, the Holy Spirit say, don't go there, stop this and go here. It's always more assets, more buildings, more land, more power, more prestige, more reputation, more coverage, more radio time, more books. It's always more, not less, which reveals the real driving factor in the equation, which again, I don't have like, I'm not inherently against against uh corporate holdings it's just in light of the day of the lord shrewdly manage them and so um i put a quote in here from uh the heavenly man where you have the chinese church they're a house-based movement but they do actually have corporate holdings they're not very fancy and they didn't spend much on them but they put some effort into digging out some caves and using caves as corporate holdings, as training centers to empower and equip the home-based movement. And I don't know if you guys uh, have ever heard Tim Miller's uh, dream and vision that he had. He had this uh, dream, I don't know, probably eight or nine years ago before going to the Horn, in which he's walking up to a, uh, a military compound, and he walks into this base, and the general or lieutenant or whoever was on the base, he walks into the room, and the, and the general looks at him and goes, A war is coming. A war is coming. Look to the Chinese church as a pattern. And he wakes up from the dream, and he's like, whoa. And so a couple of years later, he's, he's in the horn, and he has a vision in which he sees these this uh this army of worms that forms this is the short of it an army of worms he puts it in the end of his book an army of worms that forms itself into a hammer and smashes this bird that comes down to uh attack it symbolizing birds in the scriptures or symbolize wickedness and uh and crushing ultimately the antichrist being victorious over him not in wealth and power but in righteousness and uh and he wakes up from the dream or he, no, he has a, it's a vision he has. And he comes out of the vision. The Lord speaks to him, Isaiah 41, you worm, O Jacob, I will make you into a threshing uh, sledge. And then immediately comes to his mind, the back to Jerusalem book that somebody had given him a year earlier, but he hadn't, he hadn't looked at. So he thinks, why did that come into my mind? He opens up the back to Jerusalem book and sees in the table of contents, the header, an army of worms opens up to it. The scripture they quote is Isaiah 41. And then they go on to describe what I read to you last, last week about an army of worms and termites coming out, destroying the foundation of, uh, of Islam, Buddhism, and, and Hinduism. 
And so the <laughs> look to the Chinese church as a pattern in light of the Antichrist that is coming and, uh, and overcoming it. Uh, so he puts in here, after one week of fasting and prayer, right after he gets out of uh, prison for two years, I suddenly heard the Holy Spirit tell me these words, oil station. When the Lord returns, his followers must have oil burning in their lamps, referencing the reality burning that the day of the Lord is at hand and it's going to get real bad and we have to persevere and be dressed and ready that it stays real in our lives. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. Um, Until that time, our church had had experienced God's great power in our midst and had seen miracles and many people come to the Lord, but this was the first time we had ever seriously implemented a training program to send new workers into the harvest field. We called the oil station the Prophet Samuel Training Center. During the two-month school, each... uh, Each student was required to read through the entire New Testament and memorize a chapter a day. One month after the start of class, most of the students could quote the whole Gospel of Matthew by memory. We all lived and ate together in the cave. Every morning we awoke at 4.30 a.m. and washed. At 5, we worshiped the Lord. Then we prayed for all our co-workers in the field for the next few hours. At 8, the first class of the day commenced. Every day we ate only two meals at, at 10 and 5. We took turns at cooking and doing other chores in the evening we all had homework to do these young workers filled with god's oil were welcomed and appreciated all over china they became gospel warriors on the 16th of january in 94 our church elders laid hands on the young workers and sent them out into the field they scattered from our home base into all parts of china and then he just goes on telling these stories about how this corporate holding used as a training center strengthened and empowered the the home church movement in china for years to come and so can you hit that door and so and so i'm not inherently opposed to a corporate holding it's just that if we're going to do a corporate holding it better be really clear the culture the theology has to be clearly established. The culture has to be clearly established of equipping the common believer to be a witness to the day of the Lord. And it has to be shrewdly managed that the locus of the ministry doesn't become the ministry of the few, the platform of the few to build up the corporate holding and the ministry of the few, but to empower and equip the body to, to do the work of the ministry. And I mean, you, and so in light of this, I mean, I, I really am for corporate holdings so long as they really are, you know, the corporate holding becomes a center for prayer and worship to empower the saints to live in communities of prayer and worship continually where everybody in the community is completely consumed with the age to come, forsaking life in this age, living for the age to come, being empowered and equipped to be witnesses of the age to come, where you have a culture and an atmosphere that all we care about is Jesus and the age to come. And we all we want to do is live our lives 
for that and together with that and the people come together continuous, continuously with psalms and hymns and we get together on the weekends and barbecue together and then we worship and pray together for hours on end because it's the holy recreation of the community. And we need centers that are like houses of prayer that raise up and equip home-based movements in preparation for the end of the age. So I realize this is the desire of my heart, and I, and I know it's possible because I lived in it unknowingly for the first seven years of my life in home-based fellowships where this is all we did, and it's all we lived for, and it was completely consumed, and there was still a lot of confusion, etc. It wasn't very well run, but I have some sort of feel, and when I went down to Haiti, I stayed the night in, uh, some of you guys know the Harbor Church down there in Fort Lauderdale that Lee and Theo came up here out of. And all they did in the Harbor Church, all they did was flip their meeting times. They have a 10-acre campus, a huge corporate holding that requires, I mean, a lot of maintenance. I mean, they really try to keep down on maintaining that thing. But they just flip their meeting times so that their Sunday corporate meeting they do on Friday nights and their small, group, their small home groups they do on Sunday mornings. And it completely shifted the locus of ministry and the atmosphere in the church that the purpose for the fivefold ministry and the supported eldership was to equip and empower the ministry that happens in the homes on Sunday morning. Not that big of a shift. But it changed the atmosphere and the culture of why we're here and what we're doing. And it completely empowered the home fellowships to have significance and identity. And that this is where the ministry happens. This is where the life happens. And this is where we do communion. This is where we worship. This is where we take our tithe and we distribute and bless each other. And then they give also to the corporate structure. And I would obviously be a little bit more radical than that, but it was just like, oh my goodness, this isn't that hard of a thing to do. And the reason that the churches don't do it is, uh, I think it's because of this jobby right, near, right here, because the real driving factor is that the leadership wants control. They want to people to know how many people they're running. They want to build a big church. They want to have a lot of people following them. They want to have big assets and they create, they use the corporate structure as an extension of their desire to build an empire. And I'm not being like super critical. It's just A plus B equals C in the equation. So be innocent as dove, but shrewd, doves, but shrewd as, as snakes. So they say, uh, so too, the church is an organic family. So this is a little bit of review from last week, but it provides kind of a theological foundation for stewarding the growth of the church. A, no metaphor is uh, more commonly used concerning the church than that of a body, which we talked about last week. The body by defini- a body by definition is a living organism. And so I put down there uh, just a definition, the entire structure of an organism, animal, plant, or human. And so a body is essentially organic. Um, 
The use of the body metaphor is used intentionally to emphasize the quality of life in and between believers. The healthy, the healthy functioning of the body is the highest goal of the apostolic church. Like all organisms, organisms in creation, the church is called to be fruitful and multiply. The church was always intended to be a living body designed by God to be healthy and fruitful. And so, uh, Matthew 28 when the Lord says, the Father has given all authority to me. He's entrusted all judgment to me. They interpreted that, that he's been given all authority. Therefore, he's the one who will judge the earth and execute the day of the Lord. Therefore, in context to the day of the Lord, go make disciples in preparation for the day of the Lord, baptizing them, and teaching them everything I've commanded until the end of this age when the day of the Lord will happen. And so the inherent command is to be fruitful and multiply who you are, who you believe in me and you, uh, your faith is in the day of the Lord. Multiply it to other human beings. Two, as the human body is designed for intimacy unto fruitfulness, so also is the body of Christ designed for intimacy with God unto fruitfulness in righteousness, which produces converts, those born of God and discipled in light of the day of the Lord. So John 15, he uses the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And the point of the vine and the branches is if you remain in me, and like Matthew 16, who do others say that I am? But who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you remain in me, that I am going to go up and suffer and die, and that you likewise must enter into suffering in this age before you receive the glory in the age to come. If you remain in me and crucify all of that empirishness, then you will produce fruit of righteousness and love, because right after that in John 15, he makes clear what the fruit is that you keep the commands of the Lord. And the, my command is this, to love one another as I have loved you, to what is greater love than this, that a man lay down his life in love for his brother. Meaning you use your resources, your wealth and your influence and your power to love people and bless people and not build up uh, the things of this world. And so uh, if you... If you remain in me, then you'll produce fruit of righteousness and love. And so this is the context of uh, the remaining aspect. I just put a couple uh, scriptures under there, which I should do in little bullet points. Always tweaking the diagram and outline. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through, the de through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. And so the remaining in Christ is essentially, I mean, remaining in Christ involves all three, the faith and worship, the discipleship, sanctification, the evangelism, proclamation. But at its core, it's the remaining in faith and, and oil and reality in your inner man that it's actually true. Because sometimes, you th whatever. Jude 1, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. 
keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of, of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so the remaining will then, like point three, the church ought to naturally produce as it walks in holiness and right. Uh, it ought to naturally reproduce as it walks in holiness and righteousness amongst unbelievers. Focusing on the quality of life and light of the day of the Lord, it ought to be obvious to everyone that Christians are not living for this age. There should be no need for spiritual <laughs> artificial insemination, if you're going to refer to the body language, unnatural evangelistic programs within the body. And so it, it really ought to just simply, you know, to remain or abide you know, and our faith, righteousness, etc., ought to produce fruit of love and righteousness, which therefore, when unbelievers see it, ought to reproduce, uh, produce repentance naturally in the equation. And so, uh, like First Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. And then you have your two main evangelistic passages. I mean, you know, if you guys have been involved with circles like Campus Crusade, it's these two passages that are just plucked out and pressed on you, that you have to go door to door and, and evangelize. And the context of the two passages is meekness and defensiveness, not, not fear-based, but that you walk out and righteousness and holiness, and you're always prepared when unbelievers look at you and go, why are you not trying to work your way up the corporate ladder and dominate people? Like, why, why are you not like that? And then you're prepared and you're sharp in your spirit to say, because I believe Jesus is returning. And I want to live my life for the age to come because I believe I'll be raised from the dead and glory. And I don't want to live like the rest of the world because they're going to be thrown into a lake of fire. These things are true, you know. Would you like to be saved from a lake of fire? It's not that hard <laughs> to, like, give a testimony for the hope that you hold. So First Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Note the give the answer to, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may not be ashamed of their slander. Rather than those who speak maliciously, they actually have something to use against the church because it does this crusading mentality of, you know what I'm saying? All right, so uh, page five. Colossians 4, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may, not, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So four, as there is no explicit fruitfulness strategy within marriage, so also there is no explicit church planning strategy laid out in the New Testament. Because fruitfulness is the assumed product of intimacy. So in a marriage, you don't ever have to, like all of the training courses on 
good, you know, like good sex life in marriage. I don't know if you've seen those, like, you know, mega churches will hold like conferences on sex and marriage and like they'll do like, I mean, I've been to like seminars where they do tell you like how to do sex. And I'm just sitting there going, what in the world? You know what I mean? Because if you focus on intimacy and right relationship within your marriage and mutual respect and love and tenderness, the fruitfulness and intimacy thing will happen. I mean, it just, we're designed that way and it will fix itself. I mean, it's just like, you don't have to teach anyone how to be fruitful and multiply. If, if the intimacy is right, you know what I mean? And so likewise, if the church is functioning in, right, <laughs> you guys are only in year one. You have no idea 10 years from now. Okay, so <laughs> we've been doing a small group in our house. All right, keep moving. So, so likewise, in the church, if, if you really have a group of people who really do believe in the day of the Lord and the age to come, and their whole life is devoted to the Lord, and they encourage and they love one another, they spur one another on, they strengthen each other, they, meet, they do not give up meeting together, worshiping and praying together, it's inherently, because they're living their lives among unbelievers, it's inherently going to reproduce when they remain a faithful witness, when people ask them, why are you so weird? And so that's kind of... Now, that qualified, the rest of this session is basically how to do the reproduction, which ought to be because the analogy really is the church has done reproduction by artificial insemination for so long, people don't know how to reproduce naturally. It's really much better reproducing naturally. The artificial insemination bit is awkward, uncomfortable, and marriage shouldn't work that way. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's basically half a session on how the church ought to spiritually have sex. All right, there you go. And reproduce itself. So, but you have entire books and volumes and movements dedicated to how the church ought to spiritually have sex. You know what I mean? And so it's important, yes, but it ought to be the obvious conclusion of our theology and our right heart and our living together, etc., etc. All right. Um, skip that last point. I shouldn't have put that in there. It's a little ugly or spiky, whatever. B, the scriptures also emphasize the church as spiritual family B, the, the scriptures also emphasize the church as spiritual family numerous times. Like the body metaphor, the goal of a family is also quality of life. A family ultimately strives towards health and maturity. Likewise, this is the goal of the fivefold ministry to father mature spiritual families that reproduce and create healthy spiritual families of their own. And so, uh, I just put a couple of those references. Uh, Oikios, that, that use the, the word Oikios, which is household or family. 
Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family, the the oikios of believers, the household of believers. Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer speaking of the Gentile strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, the, the Jewish believers, and members of the household, the family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Hebrews 3, But... Christ is faithful as a son over, over God's house, and we are his house, his household, his family, if we hold on to our courage and the hope uh, of which we boast. As in any righteous family, the goal of leadership within the home is not unto the glorification and exaltation of the maturity of the parents. Rather, it is the goal of the parents to love, train, and empower the children within the home, creating an environment of an atmosphere of love and common household health. So page six, just an example, this is how Paul relates in his apostolic ministry and his leadership. Second Corinthians 12, Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Because the point in all of the epistles is that Paul is constantly pressing, God knows every time I think of you, I pray for you constantly. I lived among you. I was holy and blameless. I never used you. I, everything I do is for your building and your edification. Because you have to create an atmosphere and culture of trust just like within a family. You don't just... Do A, B, and C, and all of a sudden your family is great. Like you live out life and you do things consistently so that your wife really believes that she's not just your, you know, your social uh, uh, trophy, that you have this beautiful wife, whatever, that she's not just your sex object, that your children aren't just your tools for your family empire. Like you have to actually... Live your life and build an atmosphere and culture in your home of trust and love where your kids really believe that you really are a person of love and that you really actually care about them. And so likewise in the church, in the family of believers, this has, it, it's, it doesn't just, you don't A, B, and C it. Like it takes self-sacrifice and it takes doing things that actually communicate to people that you're not in it for your own honor, glory, and, and wealth in the equation. Two, apostolic ministers are the chief fathers. All of the fivefold ministry is a fathering type ministry, and the apostolic ministry being the chief of the fivefold ministry. They're chief fathers within the body of Christ, those who are entrusted with the gospel out of love for the family of believers and equipped to establish others in the faith. Like First Thessalonians 2, your witnesses, and so, uh, so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Three, the role of the apostolic ministry within the body of Christ is that of a fatherly mastermind. Gifted by God to establish a solid foundation for a house within which spiritual families can grow and and flourish. So he talks to the Corinthian church and he talks about how they are God's building 
And Paul, like a master builder, laid a foundation of Jesus, who Jesus is in the day of the Lord, that other people are building upon. And as a fatherly mastermind, he, he laid a foundation that this is how you should be birthed in the fear of the Lord concerning the day of the Lord. And you should be nurtured uh, walking out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that everybody who builds that house and nurtures you after I gave birth to you ought to do it like I did it. And so the, 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 the uh, master builder, uh, you, you can use it in context to a house. A, the apostolic ministry is the fatherly ministry that knows how to give birth to a family and raise it up to a mature family that then can reproduce on its own and give birth to its own children and not children of, uh, of Gehenna and children of the devil that, that they turn into that way. And so this is, uh, this is really like when I think about, you know, the house church movement that is happening, this is where it stumbles and starts to fall apart because you don't have a clear day of the Lord theology. Because when everybody in the room has a common understanding of the day of the Lord, it produces a cleanness. It produces a foundation in the house that everybody can walk on that doesn't fall apart. Because we're all, when we're all in the same understanding, we all have a common master and a common Lord, and we're all going to give an account for our lives and what we do and everything we say, we all relate to each other. Like, a, you know, like the analogy I gave a while back, like kids in a classroom with a dad who everybody fears the dad in the room. In a, I mean, a home. Everybody fear if there's the common understanding of threat of punishment, if you don't walk in love and righteousness, then everybody relates to each other normally. And we bump into each other while we're playing and we hurt each other, but we quickly for, you know, repent and we quickly forgive and lie to the day of the Lord. And when there's not a clear day of the Lord theology that is a foundation for everything, then the functioning together begins to uh, fall apart because we're, we don't have a, you know what I'm saying. Anyway, uh, how much time we got? 25. Oh, all kinds of time. Four, uh, the church can only grow when it is healthy in heart, thought, and lifestyle. And the leadership of the fivefold ministry is primarily responsible for the creation of this healthy environment. When, a young, when young believers are rightly nurtured and trained and equipped, the church is able to effectively reproduce and multiply. So like uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, right before that, where he's talking about what after all is Apollos, what's Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who makes things grow. And he's making the point, you know, that we're all just fellow servants under a common master. And therefore we shouldn't relate in a goofy way in lie of the day of the Lord. And he says, you know, we're nothing. But in reality, the, apostol- the fivefold ministry really is something. Paul actually did plant the seed and Apollos actually did water it. And so the fivefold ministry 
sets the the context of a healthy environment giving a a simple and clear theology of the age to come and the day of the Lord and giving a a uh, simple praxis of living in love, walking in righteousness. And so they plant and water and create an environment. And then God is the one who works by his Holy Spirit and raises people up into maturity in light of the day of the Lord. Uh, C, we'll finish this section. So, see, the fivefold ministry ex- extends only as far as real familial bonds can extend. The authority must only function, authority must only function within the bounds of love. Those who try to enforce rules and discipline upon those they have no loving, loving relationship with violate their authority. And so this happens uh, in, in leadership, I mean, everywhere you look, whether it's, you know, Mainline evangelical, big church growth, missions movement, charismatic. If, if we would just relate in leadership based in love, based on relationship, under a common head of the Lord, it would stave off so much damage and confusion in the situation. Because this is the point. You only have authority as a leader, whatever role you're functioning within as a leader, you only have authority based on your relationship with people. And so my kids, I only have authority with my kids because I have a relationship established in which there's a loving context that I can enforce rules and discipline, which is discipleship. It's just the enforcing of discipline. And so... It's the most bizarre thing when you get together with other parents and their kids and they start enforcing their discipline on your kids. And you're like, what are you doing? You don't know my kids? They don't know you? Obviously, they're supposed to respect you, but there's mutual submission between our families. You know, and you talk to me first before you discipline my kids. And so you get this mentality in leadership of these you know, apostolic and leadership networks over mass movements of people, and they have absolutely no relationship with these people. But to be part of this movement, you have to work through this curriculum, and you have to do this, and you have to sign up for this, and fill out this application, and you never know any of the leadership within the movement. And, and so you're getting discipline enforced on you when there's absolutely no context of love in the equation. And it completely breaks down and makes the whole thing dysfunctional when, when leadership functions outside of its bounds of authority, which is relationship and love. So uh, like Paul says, I'm not writing this to shame you in 1 Corinthians 4 right after this from 1 Corinthians 3, but to warn you as my dear children, even though, I have ten, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And so Paul's not going to make these, he's not going to make these bold statements don't you know that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God? You know, he wouldn't just slap people in the face and discipline them and give them a spank on the butt, is a better example, give them a spank on the butt if he didn't have a clear context of love and relationship within which he can enforce his authority. 
So A, no healthy family organizes itself to become a global cartel, centrally organized in an endless pyramid. Families that are run like a business produce driven and effective children. So I agree, you know, charting it all out, doing the big org charts and all the flow charts and, you know, all of that, it is more effective on the propagation of materials, on the expansion of impact but the question is what is that impact and what fruit does it actually produce it's definitely more effective but the question is in the day of the lord when the house gets judged and your family that you've created gets judged will it actually produce quality of family and quality of fruit and love that will not pass away and endure into the age to come um so second corinthians 10 For even if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. But we will not boast beyond our limits. Uh, We will boast only with uh, with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We were the first to come come to you all the way to you uh, with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. So you get this clear, uh, the, the... Limits and bounds of the fivefold ministry is based on relationship and and love and the ability to enforce discipline uh, out of love. I mean, this isn't like rocket science. It it's common sense in light of the day of the Lord, but needs to be said. So, two, the fivefold ministry must function in a loving relational network defined by depth of relationship. Moreover, the fivefold ministry must function in mutual submission under mutual, uh, unto mutual edification under a mutual common head. The assumption of ultimate leadership of the church by any one of the fivefold ministries is death to the, fu- the healthy functioning of the body. Because when you get into this, you end up with these endless questions and games of accountability and whose covering are you under and, and these massive networks. And it's just like... My covering is my spiritual family under Jesus. And I got these guys, you know, Tim Miller, Daniel Roop, Chad Brewer, etc. They know my life. They know everything that goes on. And if I'm doing something stupid, they're going to go, dude, you're going to get thrown into a lake of fire for that. Stop it. You know what I mean? And that is your covering in the relational network of of families that you're a part of and authority that the Lord gives leaders to bless, strengthen, and encourage his church. All right, let's take a break. We'll jump into part three.